Good morning, church. You can stand and uh, read with me. We're reading from 2 Samuel 15, 1 through 14. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used, arise, used to rise early and stand beside the way of the, in the, of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were a judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur at Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. This is the word of the Lord. You may now be seated. All right, thanks, Brent. Uh, Brett. God, I don't know why that end sneaks in there. Sorry about that. I repent. <laughs> Gee whiz. Uh, good morning, Arcadia. How y'all doing? Okay. Um, I know I'm not as exciting as Caleb, but we are going to open God's word at some point here today. So, um, listen, uh, we're gonna, we have a lot to cover this morning. Uh, and, and really what we're eventually going to read is, is from what Brett just read for us, which would be uh, 2 Samuel 15. So if you want to camp there, you can. We'll eventually get there. I'm going to have some other scriptures up on, on the screen for us as well so that we can follow along um, in that way. Uh, and then towards the end of the, well, right at the end of the sermon, I'm actually going to go into the New Testament at uh, Philippians chapter 1, so maybe you could be looking for that as well. Um, again, I want to just reiterate uh, this release party. I've been very excited. I wasn't going to go at first, but then when I heard that there were going to be key changes, that I, well, I got to, I got to see this. So anyway, um, let me, let me review where we are. We've been doing this We Want a King series for quite a while. We've looked at Saul. We're in the midst of David now. And I want to review last week. I know that 
Uh, I, think, I think that Tyler did a great job with, with me sort of interviewing him last week, talking about uh, David and Bathsheba, but I think it's helpful to review that in some depth in order to understand now uh, the relationship to what happens in the next six chapters, which is what we're going to look at uh, today. So it's, it's also important to bring people up to speed who weren't here last week, and also just to remind, you, you realize that learning is actually 10% new instruction and 90% uh, reminding people. That's what scholars have researched. So reminding is good, even uh, in church. So uh, the first thing I'm going to read to you is what uh, I would describe as a turning point in David's reign, which is described at the end of chapter 11 of Second Samuel. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. The matter would be that David was frustrated by Uriah not going and sleeping with his wife Bathsheba so that they could cover, uh, he could cover uh, the pregnancy of Bathsheba because David had gone and slept with Bathsheba. And so now he's got to eliminate Uriah somehow. He's got to, he's got to somehow get him killed in battle. And that's exactly what he did. And now they're reporting back to David and said, Joab, uh, I'm sorry, Uriah died. And so now... Uh, David is flippantly just covering over for this. He says, thus shall you say to Joab, don't let Uriah's death displease you because the sword devours one and now another. Just strengthen your attack against the city and go and overthrow it now. When the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. That last line of chapter 11. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I would argue that's a problem. Anybody want to argue against the fact that that's a problem? That's a problem. And again, just notice David's flippancy toward the death of his servant Uriah, who was so faithful and who at one point said, uh, without knowing what he was saying to David, he said, David, I would never do what you have done. I would never uh, do that. And notice the sadness of Bathsheba. She had lost her husband. But this thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Oh, boy. Enter Nathan and his indicting parable. As Tyler and I talked about last week, we usually only think of parables in the New Testament. A parable is a worldly story or illustration that exemplifies a spiritual truth. Uh, the fact is, is that there are also a few parables in the Old Testament. This might be the most famous one where Nathan goes to David and tells him about the guy, the rich guy who stole the poor guy's uh, lamb. And then Nathan stings David with the punchline after David says, surely this man must be brought to justice who did this. And, and Nathan says, in Hebrew, he says, Haish Atah, you are the man. And that indicts David. David gets it. And I will just say this, the truth is, truth is all of us need a Nathan in our lives. All of us need somebody who uh, is able to speak truth into our lives, and not only truth into our lives, but done in such a way that we can hear it, and we have a responsibility to listen to it and to be able to respond to it as well. All of us have blind spots, all of us have... Um, areas where we don't know about ourselves, but other people seem to. And so we all need a Nathan or two in our lives. Now, 
Don't just go out and start looking for any old Nathan. This is, this is a process that also needs some discernment and wisdom on your part. You can't just pick anybody to start speaking truth into your life because unfortunately, because of the corruption of sin, there are many people who would love to be able to do that with you for all the wrong reasons. So it, this is not an easy thing to do. This is something that you need uh, to be able to build up a relationship of trust in community. There has to be times when, when there's been some breaches in your relationship and you've, you've both understood how to repair that through Christ. You have the same worldview. All of these things have to be happening for you. And then you can finally get that person. So you may not have somebody right now in your life. And if that's true, then I would say you need to start working on relationship and community as well because you need these kinds of people in your life. I have two or three, maybe four of these people in my life. They're really important to me, although it's not always the most comfortable thing when they do speak truth in my life. And I'll fully admit that one of them is actually Jackie, my wife. Yes, my spouse seems to know me a little bit better than most other people, seems to know my blind spots. And although at times it's really difficult to listen to her speak truth into my life, it's always done with love and honor and dignity and respect, and it's always helpful, even if in the moment I tell her she's wrong. And then I have this tendency to think about it and pray about it, and then later on I'm like, yeah, you're right. So it's just important, but there are other people as well. We all need a Nathan in our life. It's Proverbs 27. The wounds of a friend are faithful. They're good for us. They are good wounds. They are cleansing wounds. But an enemy will multiply kisses. Your enemy will misdirect you with flattery. Oh, you're just so wonderful. You're just, yes, whatever. Yeah, oh, yes, I just affirm you, I affirm you, I affirm you. No matter what, even though you're destroying your life and other people's lives, I affirm you. That's an enemy. That's not genuine love. And that's not a relationship of trust. The wounds of a friend are faithful. So David confesses his sin, but he still suffers the consequences of that sin. The child that he and Bathsheba conceived died. And, and t- Tyler talked about that uh, last week as well. And, and if, you, if you want a little bit more on that, you, and you didn't, weren't here last week, you should listen to uh, the recording of it or watch it on YouTube. But I want to point out something else about the fact that uh, David and Bathsheba's son died as a consequence of his sin It's interesting, uh, the part of chapter 12 that we did not cover last week, because we just didn't have time, David prays fervently that God would spare the child. He knows this consequence is coming, and yet he goes to God in prayer and prays fervently that God would spare the the child, even though he knew that the, the sentence was probably already cast. And yet, and yet, After David's prayers were answered with a resounding no from God, what does David do after the child dies? Here's what he does. 2 Samuel 12, 20. David went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. David went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. So, serious, again, a question. How often do you and I get ourselves in trouble with sin... We get ourselves into trouble with our own foolishness, with our pride and our stubbornness towards the things of God. And then when things go badly, we self-righteously blame who? God. (laughs) David goes and worships God. 
Because he knows that he sinned. He knows that what he did was foolish. He knows that what he did was wicked and wrong. And he knows that without God pointing that out, he's got nothing in this life. He's got nothing in this life. And if we're honest, we do this pretty often. And maybe we don't blame God, but we're we're, we're sure quick to blame somebody else if we don't blame God. So David actually does everything right in response to his sin. And that's good. And that's one of the things that separates him from the other kings of Israel. But his sin, we need to understand, his sin was more than just sexual exploitation and murder. We have to understand that because most people just think of his sin as sexual exploitation and murder. His sin was more than that. This episode in David's life signaled one of the things that this whole series that we're doing for 22 weeks gets at, and it is power. Power is heady, it's alluring, it's attractive, but very few people really know how to handle power in the best possible way. And when we get the power that we covet, it tends to then make us think that we've got it all figured out, that we're invincible, and that we really don't need any more wisdom or guidance from God. I would argue that the Bible probably has a ratio of 30 to 1. People who abuse their power, people that we're told about in the Bible, 30 to 1 who might use the power correctly or in a healthy way or in a God-honoring way. In other words, 30 to 1 people losing their souls over power as opposed to those who manage power in a godly, other-oriented way. It's pretty easy to name the few as well. There's Joseph in the last uh, several chapters of the book of Genesis. There's the prophet Daniel. He's got his own book. There's the judge, uh, Deborah. You can find her in the book of Judges. Uh, There's Nehemiah. There's an entire book named after him too. Mostly Nehemiah. He he has some slips at times, but mostly Nehemiah. I think we could possibly throw Esther into um, into that category. Esther and probably Mordecai. Maybe throw Jesus into that. I think we could put Jesus in that category as well. One of the ones, okay? So what 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 do is, that, is, is they signal a downward, drop-your-guard spiral for David. And although David still does some great things, and he often honors God, he confesses his sin when it's pointed out to him, he repents of it. The Bathsheba incident marks the start of a challenging run for David, and that's where we are today. And before we move into our chapters for today, I want to point something else out because it speaks to one of the reasons why we, uh, the lead pastors at Redemption Church decided to do this series in the first place. We all desire a king or a savior or some other or ourself to put our faith and trust in so that we can feel secure. I, I understand that. That's natural. The title of this series is We Want a King. Just like the Israelites, we thought we think uh, some king, some savior, some Messiah, other than God, other than Jesus, is somehow going to save us. And they had a king. The problem with the Israelites is that they had a king, and that would be God. But they rejected him in favor of a human king. They thought they could do better with a human king. Maybe because they thought they could manipulate a human king. Very foolish. You heard the reading from today. Absalom in in the reading today is essentially saying. I can be manipulated by you. That's why I should be your king. That's the subtext to what Absalom is saying. But it's all foolishness. 
And just as we are foolish today when we choose not to put our faith in Jesus and instead pursue some politician or philosopher or some pastor or some other kind of guru or ourselves, we also pursue ourselves, that's foolishness. We're saying, I trust some flawed human being, including myself, more than I would trust the holy creator God of this universe. And I I would just, let me just say one little thing about pastors. I, I hope you realize that one of the main jobs of a pastor is to point you to the true king, the true savior, Jesus, and never to himself. Anyway, consider this. I want you to grapple with this. David is described in scripture in mostly glowing terms. And yet last week we started the section of this series that mostly describes David's sins, flaws, and shortcomings. And to that, we would say this. So you want a king? The best king we have can't even hold it together. Do you see that? you see that? What does that say about anyone other than Jesus that we have chosen to put our hope in? So, supposed to cover six chapters today, even after that long introduction, 13 through 18. My plan, of course, is to give you a summary of most of it. There's some things that we're going to have to leave out. Uh, But what these chapters are about is David's strained relationship with his son Absalom and Absalom's challenge to David's throne. And then we'll zero in on what we think is probably the core of this passage, which is what Brett read for us. So chapter 13, this will be the longest summary. Uh, for, For me, chapter 13 is one of the most difficult chapters in Scripture. I've said that a lot during this series, haven't I? A lot of tough stuff in here. It's one of the most difficult chapters in Scripture for me, but it's also where we would find what we might call the inciting incident for everything that happens in these six chapters. Um, so hang on with me. You've got to listen closely because this is going to be a little bit like a family reunion that you go to, and you need name tags just to be able to keep everybody straight. Anybody have a family like that? Where it's, yeah, it's really... Uh, Jackie's family is like that. I, I know everybody in my family. There's only one or two of us. But her family, hundreds and hundreds of people in the Midwest. It's just like insane, okay? So here we go. David had a son named Amnon from his second wife, Ahinoam. And then David had a son and a daughter from his third wife, Makah. And their names are Absalom and Tamar. So Amnon is a half-brother to Absalom and Tamar. And now remember, King David, this man after God's own heart, eventually collected eight wives. And although he never entered the realm of Solomon's prodigious wifery, I think it's safe to say that David had more wives than any one person in this room. Is that anybody with eight or more wives? Okay, guess not. All right. Anyway, Amnon becomes infatuated with his younger half-sister, Tamar. So much so that Scripture tells us that he became physically ill with how infatuated, how lustful he was going after Tamar. That's how bad he wanted her. But it would be wrong, mostly, it would be wrong for him to have Tamar. So his cousin and his friend, Jonadab, a guy named Jonadab, comes to Amnon and says, why are you so downcast? Amnon tells him that he's lovesick, but figures there's nothing he can really do about it. So Jonadab comes up with a scheme, a plan for Amnon, and Amnon decides it's worth a try. So here's the scheme. Amnon is going to play sick 
And he's going to tell his father, David, who for some reason is completely oblivious to this transparent scam. He tells David that the only way he can feel better is if Tamar comes and cooks him a meal and feeds it to him. So David tells Tamar to go and help her half-brother, and she does. She prepares the meal, and she presents it to Amnon, and then Amnon whines and says that he wants everybody else to leave the house, everybody except Tamar, and Tamar is to come into his bedroom and hand-feed the meal to him. Yeah, right. Anyway, once they are alone... Amnon forces himself on Tamar. Now, I think here are some important details. Uh, Tamar protests, but maybe not the way we might think. She tells Amnon, she says, this is the wrong way to do this, Amnon. I'm open to having a conversation about this, uh, but this is the wrong way to do it. Both of us will end up being shamed by this. This should never happen in Israel. Now, this... This statement that she says, this should never happen in Israel, it's her way of saying, God would never approve of this. God would never approve of this. If you want to be with me, there is a way that potentially we could do this properly. Let's go to the king and ask, and if we possibly get his okay for us to be together, then we can be together. I I think her, by the way, just a little New Testament uh, shadowing her, her her objection has shades of first corinthians chapter 5 when paul is telling the church at corinth that there is a sin going on in the church of corinth that is so abhorrent so wicked so disgusting that not even the pagans in corinth would approve of it but you're allowing it to go on there is a son having sexual relationships with his father's wife And Paul says that's horrible. This is Tamar saying the same thing. This is too shameful for us to do. So trying to help, she suggests an alternative plan that maybe would have gotten Amnon what he wants, but in an honorable way. Again, here you go. Last week, Tyler kept talking about all the potential off-ramps that people have in the Old Testament before they sin. They have all these opportunities to not sin. All these off-ramps. Here's an off-ramp for Amnon. But he's so blinded by his lust, he's so blinded by his desire, he can't see that maybe he could just wait another 48 hours and everything would be fine. Think about how often these characters get a chance to rethink the sin that they will commit. But her idea only incites Amnon further, and so he rapes Tamar. And here's the part that is so desperately difficult to digest, but is also quite common to the human condition. How often have we desired something with such a great desire that we obsess about it? It's the only thing on our mind. We have to have it. It occupies our every thought. But then when we we acquire or achieve or consume that thing, we actually begin to hate that thing. It didn't fulfill us the way we thought it would. The cost to acquire it or achieve it was more than we calculated. We never considered the potential downside of our acquisition, our achievement, or consumption. Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, used to say this about sin. Our sin always takes us further than we wanted to go. It keeps us there longer than we wanted to stay, and it costs us more than we were willing to pay. That's what sin does to us, those three things, virtually every time. And that's happened to Amnon here. As soon as Amnon was done having his way with Tamar, here's what verse 15 says. Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. 
so that he hated, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. Tamar protested, Amnon insisted. Tamar leaves but mourns and laments. I'm sure we can all understand that. So this story is disturbing, but it's not over. A couple things happen, and they are also not good. First of all, David hears about this, but because Amnon was a favored son of his, he does nothing about it. Amnon was a favored son of his, so he does nothing about it. Also, I think that in the background, there's also this idea that David has that I had just committed this horrible sin. Who am I to go and do anything about this sin as well? But mostly it's because Amnon's a favored son. He lets it go. And this is a huge mistake by David. You know, there are sins of commission and omission. Hope you understand that. So Amnon committed a sin. David is now sinning by omission. He does not discipline when discipline is called for and required. Second, Absalom now enters the picture, and he hated his half-brother Amnon for doing this because he did it to his full sister, Tamar. But because David did nothing about this situation, and in the spirit of revenge tastes best when the plate is cold, Absalom concocts a scheme to assassinate Amnon, but he waits two years before he carries it out. But carry it out he did, and he assassinates Amnon. Uh, Side note, Again, I want you to think about David, Bathsheba, and Uriah, and how there is so much in the Old Testament what we call narrative mirroring. There's some narrative mirroring going on with that David and Bathsheba and Uriah situation. It seems that David's whole family has a thing about unbiblical sexual relationships and then murder to try to fix it. In fact, we could look at it this way. David's son Amnon seems to pick up on David's penchant for sexual sin And David's son, Absalom, picks up on David's penchant for sins of violence. But both are intoxicated by power. Both are intoxicated by power. Anyway, when Absalom has his own regret, then Absalom has his own regret and consequences to deal with. And when he found out that David knew that his favored son had been assassinated by him, Absalom flees. He runs away. He doesn't want the full weight and force of the throne to come down on him. This is a useful example of what happens when we forget both Deuteronomy and Romans teach that God is the one who avenges and we need to wait for his justice. Absalom carries out justice, but it wasn't God's justice, it was his own justice. And so now, because he does that, there are more consequences and more problems. And they are bad consequences because Amnon had no self-control. David did not step in and discipline when it was needed. And so Absalom took matters into his own hands and he decided to play God. So now David and the scheming Absalom are estranged. And that is our inciting incident. So what happens? Chapter 14, after a long exile and a lot of tension, and I'm sure soul-searching, God sends a wise woman from Tekoa to David, and she gives the king a little Nathan-like shuck-and-jive parable that convinces the king that it's time to bring the fleeing Absalom back to Jerusalem. So David does the right thing and invites him back. But strangely, Absalom returns to Jerusalem under a cloud. David is still angry with him, And so he isn't allowed to see David. Absalom can't see David for two years. And as a result, Absalom's resentment against David grows. And then in chapter 15, 
You know, up until chapter 15, you might think that Amnon was worse and more wicked than Absalom. But now in chapter 15, it becomes apparent that Absalom is a huge problem, and he also has many issues. Absalom deceives David. He secretly builds support for himself to be king in order to wrestle the throne away from David, and then he plans to attack David. So David flees. David now flees Jerusalem. Now understand, this is not a divided kingdom so much as it is yet another time that David chooses exile over fighting. He chose exile over fighting with Saul as well. And so Absalom takes over in Jerusalem. But there are many men who are loyal to David who go with David. And they become his army, which is needed in chapter 18 for the final showdown. In chapter 16, David continues in exile, and Absalom takes his wickedness and perversion to new heights in Jerusalem. He defiles David's concubines. So that's shades of Nathan's pronouncement on David when he says, you know, all these women that you have, other men are going to be with them. So that fulfills that prophecy of Nathan. So chapter 17 begins to set up the final conflict. Absalom is first counseled by Ahithophel to attack and eliminate David. But then this guy named Hushai shows up. And he steps in and counsels Absalom against this foolish plan, explaining that David and his men are too smart to fall for this plan. But Hushai is actually sort of a double agent. Hushai gives Absalom a different plan for attacking David, one that will take longer to implement, that would give Hushai time to get over to David and warn David so that he could be ready for the final uh, confrontation. So David is spared for now but still on the run, still in exile, still waiting for the final battle. A lot of intrigue. You should read it. And finally, in chapter 18, everything comes to a head. The forces of David will meet the forces of Absalom. And David gives strict instructions to his army that they are not to kill his son Absalom. They are to take him alive. Don't hurt him in battle. But serendipitously, As Absalom is riding his donkey into battle, he rides under an oak tree that has a horizontal branch that has this this weird fork in it. And for one, he wasn't paying attention, and Absalom's neck gets caught in the fork of this oak tree branch, and the donkey keeps going, and now Absalom is hanging from the tree. He's just hanging there, okay? Literally, he's hung out to dry. Now, Joab... We'll see. You just study Joab. This, this guy, man, I'm telling you something. He's really impetuous and he's got a temper. Always on behalf of David, but man, he, just, he tends to act very impetuously. So he hears about it. He says, hey, Absalom's hanging from an oak tree. And he goes and he kills Absalom. Even after being instructed by David not to kill him. In the meantime, Absalom's forces are routed by David's army. And when David hears that his son is dead, he weeps and wails and mourns. Unfortunately, it is probably for the best, and it is what God had ordained, so David is once again the undisputed king. Next week, we're going to look at David having to come back into Jerusalem and how hard that transition... You'd think he'd just come back to Jerusalem, but that was a hard transition as well. So let's finish by taking a little closer look at those verses in chapter 15 that Brett read for us. And then I want to wrap up with a New Testament passage, Philippians 1, that I think casts some light on what David was attempting to accomplish here. So verses 1 through 6 in chapter 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. 
And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. This is where all the elders and the wise men would stand at the, at the gate of the city and, and talk to people, and all the merchants would be out there as well. And when any uh, man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him, intercept him, and say, from what city are you? And when he said, uh, and when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. In other words, you're not going to get anywhere with David, but you can get somewhere with me. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were the judge in this land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put his hand, put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men in Israel. So Absalom's intercepting cases that were supposed to go to David in order to curry favor with the population, and it worked. He built up quite a following. So look at verses 7 through 12. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. And Absalom went 200 men, with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So, I've used this term before. Absalom is a total rat fink. Have you noticed there are many much rat finks in the Old Testament? I don't know if you've noticed that. So now we have, not, again, not really a divided kingdom, but a disputed kingdom, born of a son whose ambition and passion for power and revenge outweighs his wisdom. His desire and his ambition and passion for power and revenge outweighs his wisdom. So how does David respond? Verses 13 and 14. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were, uh, who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us, and quickly bring ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So David is willing to give up his rightful reign in order to save Jerusalem, in order to save the community, in order to save other people from pain, suffering, and damage. David is willing to, again, trust the Lord for vengeance, not himself. And although it doesn't turn out exactly the way David wanted, David's patience, wisdom, and willingness to be faithful to God was the best way to go. Because God eventually does restore David. So I read this story and I just can't get Philippians 1 out of my mind. Paul is in prison as he writes to the church in Philippi. And he's in prison completely unjustly. He was preaching the gospel. That's it. And they threw him into a prison in Rome where he stayed for two years. 
This was not part of Paul's plan. He never said these two years, 60 to 62, that's my prison ministry. He never said that. It was something that was interrupting his other ministry, his church planting ministry that he was doing. He was there unfairly, unjustly. There was no, no logical reason for him to be there, but God either caused or allowed this to happen so that he would be in prison in Rome for these two years. And here's what Paul writes to his detractors while he's in prison. Philippians 1, starting in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it's, the conjecture is that Paul's getting letters and having people visiting him saying, this is horrible what's happened to you. This is unjust. We need to do something. We need to get to Caesar. We need to write letters. We need to, we, we, this is wrong. We need to do something. And he's saying, no, no, no. What you don't seem to understand is that what's happened has actually served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's saying, I never would have been able to speak to these Roman soldiers had I not gone to prison, and now they know about Jesus. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Because this has happened to Paul, and Paul has responded with courage and not with fear, other people are encouraged by that, and now they're proclaiming uh, the gospel. They're doing the same thing. And then he says this, by the way, this has been true for 2,100 years, but he says this, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So, little shades of Absalom, little shades of, of David in there. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, but the former, the ones who preach Christ from envy and rivalry, from pride and, and covetousness, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. <laughs> he says it doesn't matter what their motivations are if Christ is being proclaimed. That's a good thing because people are hearing about Jesus. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit, not of men and women, to explain the gospel in such a way that people go, oh, okay, I get it now, without the Holy Spirit helping. It's up to the Holy Spirit to open these hearts. Okay? See, one of the biggest challenges to our faith is when injustice occurs against us. Drives every one of us crazy, right? Hate injustice. Hate it. Yet both David and Paul see this as an opportunity for God to work. God works best in the impossible. And, and let me tell you something. I'm not saying that to you. I'm saying that to me. Because I struggle with that too. God works best in the impossible. God works best in the minority. God works best in exile. God works best in remnant. God works best when his people are just a small minority remnant suffering injustice. We always hear about how the gospel is spreading like wildfire in places where the gospel has to be underground, right? We think if we just get it up above ground, then it would really spread. No, that's usually when it starts to slow down. You realize that in, in 325, when the emperor Constantine said, all right, I'm done with Christianity, persecuting Christians in the Roman Empire. Now Christianity is going to be the national religion of Rome. You realize that the church growth slowed down after that happened. 
They were on fire when they were being persecuted. Now, I'm not saying leave here today and go and look for persecution. Peter also advises against that too. There's enough persecution and suffering for Christians out there that you don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to. I'm just saying that when it comes, we need to understand that that's when God can really work. It's going to be really hard, I understand. And that's coming from somebody whose probably greatest challenge with false gods and idols is my desire for comfort. But it's just true. God works best in the impossible. God loves to show favor to those who humbly submit to his often off-putting ways, his often off-putting strategies, preferences, and instructions. And it wasn't just David and Paul. If Jesus didn't do the same thing, we have no salvation. What an injustice the crucifixion of Jesus was. The greatest injustice that ever happened. Jesus never did a single thing wrong. He never sinned. And yet they killed him for it. They crucified him for it. If Jesus doesn't do the same thing, we have no salvation. We have no purpose. We have no healing. We have no redemption. We have no grace. Understand, Jesus on the cross, that's exile. Jesus on the cross, that's remnant. That is an injustice turned into our salvation. I know that's hard, but I think that's great encouragement for us. That's what the gospel is. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your word and its truth. And even in this, uh, man, challenging story of Absalom and Amnon and Tamar and David and Joab, everybody, uh, we can find redemption and we thank you and praise you for that. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that in spite of everything uh, that we do, you sent your son uh, to make that payment for sin for us so that we could be reconciled to you. God, let that encourage us and let that um, uh, give us the boldness and confidence that we need to not only come to your throne of grace, but also to be able to uh, proclaim your good news to others. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're at our time of... uh, of response, reflection, of taking communion. If our communion servers would please come forward. If our uh, deacons and elders who are here uh, can come and stand in the wings if anybody needs prayer or has any questions, uh, you can talk to them as well when you come up to get the elements or even after service. We're going to sing two more songs together. The first one is we come together for uh, communion. And, And again, we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed at that meal, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body which is given for you. He's showing by what kind of death he was going to die. And then later he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul says that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so that's what we do every single week here. We proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again, and we get up in both confession and celebration to be able to come forward and partake in this meal. So let's do that now.
stars they wept The morning sun was dead The savior of the world was fallen His body on the cross His blood poured out for us The weight of every curse upon him One final breath he gave As heaven looked away The Son of God was laid in darkness The battle in the grave The war on death was waged The power of hell forever broken The ground began to shake The stone was rolled away His perfect love could not be Hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. 
Amen, amen. Well, church, it was so good to worship with you this morning. My name is Zach. I am one of the. I am the pastoral resident here. I'm the only one. Uh, I don't mean it like that. Uh, but it is Intro Sunday, and so every first Sunday of each month, we like to come together. Uh, if you're new here, we want to get to meet you. We want to welcome you here, and we would love to explain what we do at this church each weekend during the week and give you a tour of our campus, and then you'd get to meet some of our pastors, some of our staff at the end of that tour. But uh, Pastor Trey and I are going to be leading that, so if you're new here, meet us back at the Connect Desk, and we'll do that. But I want to read this as a benediction for us as we go on our way, church, a comforting reminder Uh, out of the book of Revelation. It says, to him who loves us, that is Jesus Christ, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We love you, church. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.